All right, Daniel chapter 2 is where we find ourselves. We will put in in verse 24, Daniel 2 and verse 24. The sun rose on a certain day in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar was there living out the Babylonian dream, whatever that was. He was the supreme ruler of much of the world, had vast stores of treasure and power. No one could stand up to him. Seemed like things were just going to get better and better and better. But then that night he started thinking about the trajectory, not only of his life, but of his empire and then the wider world. He was a thoughtful guy. Nebuchadnezzar, really interesting, interesting character. He's a builder, a warrior, a planner, a madman, <laughs> maniac. Super interesting. But he's thinking about his life. He's thinking about the trajectory. He's the man that has conquered the world, the known world, sort of for the first time, and he's thinking about that. What's going to happen? And that evening he had a dream, and it was a dream that shocked and disturbed him all the way down to his core. Not a run-of-the-mill bad dream, but something much worse. And then the next night he had it again, and then again, and again, and again. He didn't understand this vision, but he desperately wanted to, and there was something profoundly real and significant about what he was seeing, and it just consumed his thoughts. We've been looking at this the last couple of weeks, and how he's having this recurring dream, how it's freaking him out, he, he's so bothered by it, he's no longer sleeping, calls in his wise men, and we've been looking at all of that. Now, when we left off last... Daniel, this teenage prisoner of war from Jerusalem, had miraculously received the interpretation of the king's dream after a prayer meeting with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Tonight, he's going to bring the answer that Nebuchadnezzar was so desperate for. And what we find is that it's not just an answer for the king. It's not just a message for him, one individual man. It is, in fact, a broad outline of God's plan for human history, including the history we are a part of right now, the history that is still unfolding. It's a history that begins with Nebuchadnezzar in the vision and then runs all the way through to the end of the age when Christ will return to establish his kingdom on the earth. So a big, big vision. And like we pointed out a couple weeks ago, this is often called this passage, the ABCs of Bible prophecy. If you want to know about God's plan for the world, Daniel 2 is a great place to start. In this broad outline of God's plan, we're going to see the succession of four world empires before the Messiah returns. Now, perhaps hearing that statement makes you think, wait a minute, there have been way more than four world empires uh, since Babylon, since Nebuchadnezzar. What about the Mongols or the Ottomans, the British Empire, the Qing Dynasty? What about all of these different world empires? The answer is that when the Bible talks about God's prophetic plan, it is in relation to those empires which ruled over Judea and the nation of Israel, right? So yes, there have been other world empires. We think of like the Spanish Empire, all these other ones. But when the Bible is talking prophetically about world empires, it is talking through the lens of those empires in relation to the land of Israel and the nation of Israel, the people. And when we understand that, it's easy easy to see just how perfectly accurate Bible prophecy really is. 
Now our text this evening breaks into three parts in verses 24 through 30. We have the setup. In verses 31 through 45, we have uh, the retelling and the interpretation of the dream. And in verses 46 through 49, we have Nebuchadnezzar's response to what he has heard. And so let's begin in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Daniel, always fearless in his behavior. I love these stories to see the kind of bold fearlessness that he has as a servant of God. He doesn't send a letter to the mad king. Uh, he doesn't say, here's the message. You go tell him what it's about. He says, no, take me to the king. I want to see this guy. Uh, he had already gone in. We saw last week he was bold to go in and say, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know what your dream's all about, but give me time so that we can see if we can work this out. And so here he says to Arioch, the captain of the guard, take me. In the Bible, we always admire those servants of God who say, here I am, send me, right? We're inspired by that. We're encouraged by that. We think of Caleb saying, what, give me my mountain, and we applaud him. We think of David saying, hey, I'll fight the giant. Uh, David is astounded and aghast that none of the other Israelites are standing up to fight the giant after all of the things that have been promised by King Saul. We think of Stephen in the book of Acts, standing so boldly and fearlessly as a witness before the Sanhedrin there, and then becoming the first martyr of the church, but without fear and without uh, you know, anxiety. And we are inspired by those servants of the Lord. And so we need to turn that word onto ourselves in. And if we are Christians, if we look at our lives and we find that we are Christians who shy away uh, from our duty or shy away from preaching or from serving the Lord, well then we know how we ought to be praying in our own lives, right? That we would have the kind of boldness and confidence and faith like Daniel had. Verse 25 says, Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king, and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. A mixed bag here with Arioch. We saw him a little bit last week too. Seems like he and Daniel had at least a friendship or they knew of each other and, he, and, and Daniel was able to speak openly with him and, and Arioch doesn't seem like a terrible guy. On the one hand, he seems to have some personal decency. We saw uh, last week and this week, he's, he's not trying to get the wise men killed. These four categories of wise men, all the wise men who were like in charge of the government, Nebuchadnezzar said, kill all of those guys. It would be like wiping out Congress and all of the professors and all of the intellectuals you know, in your country. Yeah, kill all those people. So a reasonable person would say, well, we, we can't do this. And we see that Arioch isn't like chomping at the bit to kill people. He's kind of dragging his feet a little bit. And here we see he's moving quickly. He moved quickly to get Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. And so clearly he wasn't excited about murdering innocent people. That's great. On the other hand here, he lies about his part in all of this. Oh, I found a man. No, you didn't. Daniel came to you. You were going out and kind of dragging your feet, not doing what the king had asked you to do. And then Daniel came and found you and said, hey, I can solve this for us. And so 
It's a good reminder for us as we look at him as an example or just as a character here in the story, good example for each of us to be people of real integrity, real honesty. Not integrity half the time and then kind of cutting corners to get ahead the other half the time, but that we would be people of real integrity who speak honestly uh, and represent ourselves uh, accurately. Verse 26 says, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I I have seen and its interpretation. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Stop right there. Once again, we see Daniel is in no hurry. Uh, he's not stressed out. His very life is still hanging in the balance as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned. Any extra seconds in the presence of this king might mean uh, your head was going to get separated from your body, but Daniel is not worried about it. With his life hanging in the balance still, he takes time to talk about the Lord. And clearly, you see that Daniel gave a lot of thought to what he would say to the king when he got the chance. And you could go deeper into what he said and how he said it and see that Daniel was thinking about what he said and, and he was careful about what he said. He was saying what he said with purpose. And one thing that Daniel highlights is the fact that this all-knowing God was personally reaching out to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, this God, the God of heaven, who knows secrets, has made known to you these things, Nebuchadnezzar. And what a remarkable statement. Think about this. Try to put yourself in the place of a pagan Babylonian like Nebuchadnezzar, if you can. Nebuchadnezzar had served many gods in pagan Babylon. They were polytheists, had all these weird you know, deities that they worshipped. But none of them had ever given him anything other than silence. None of his gods ever, had ever spoken to him. None of their gods had ever revealed themselves to him. It's one of the great things about God's messages through his prophets, right? He'll often say, hey, your, your idols of wood and stone, are they saying anything? I know they don't talk, they don't hear, they don't see, they don't smell, they don't do anything. What are they doing for you exactly? But you're King Nebuchadnezzar and you're filling the temples of all of these uh, mute gods, right? It said at the very beginning of the book, he took the treasure from Jerusalem, put it in the temple of his God. Your, his God didn't say anything back to him, didn't reveal any secrets to him, didn't speak to him or, or reach out to him. And here now, for the first time, he hears, actually, there's a real God, and I know who he is, and that God wants to tell you something. He, he, he knows your name, and he sent a message to you. That's a great way to evangelize. And that's what's true, right? I mean, people that you encounter out in the lost world, people at your work or just strangers, where people who don't know Jesus Christ, Jesus knows them, right? Jesus has a message for them, right? Not just generally, but specifically. He has intentions for their lives. He has the hairs of their head numbered, right? And we know that. And what a great way to evangelize people and say, hey, I actually know a God who's spoken to you, who's written you a letter. We sang about it. He, you wrote a letter and you signed your name. It's a letter addressed to each of us, not just the world generally, but to each of us individually. And so Daniel here uh, 
says a remarkable thing to Nebuchadnezzar, but then he also uses a very important phrase there in verse 28, which will help us as readers categorize what we are about to read. He says, these are things that will be in the latter days. Very important. This is a phrase used in the Bible, specifically in prophecy, that is wide in scope. It does not simply refer to the latter days of Nebuchadnezzar's life or his rule over Babylon, but it can extend all the way through to the end of human history. Uh, Jeremiah used this term in, in respect to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We find this term in the latter days in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Micah. It's a prophetic phrase. Uh, it's a loaded phrase if you're reading the Bible. Verse 28 continues. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes, who make known the interpretation of the ch to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Something I love about these verses is how God went the extra mile. Now remember this. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar had said to his wise men. He had told all those guys, you have to tell me the dream and then the interpretation, and if you can't, I'm going to kill you. And they said, of course, that's impossible. He said, okay, then I'm going to kill you. Uh, and Daniel even said, yeah, that's impossible. But here, notice, God not only gives the interpretation of the dream and the dream, what does he do? Daniel's able to say, here's what you were thinking about before you went to bed. I love that. God gave an extra portion. He said, I'm not only going to tell you the interpretation of this dream. I'm not only going to do the impossible thing, give the king what he asked for, tell you what the dream was. You're going to talk to him about what he was thinking about before he ever closed his eyes. That must have been a mind blower to Nebuchadnezzar. But here, Daniel also doubles down and states again that God had come looking for Nebuchadnezzar. He says, look, God wants to save my life. You're about to kill me and my friends. God is, wants to save us for our sake. He's given us the interpretation. But also, he wants you to know the thoughts of your heart. He's a God of revelation and answers and personal care. Even for a man like you, Nebuchadnezzar, who would wipe out innocent people wholesale, Nebuchadnezzar, this is a God of compassion we're talking about. He's the kind of God that does not treat his enemies the way you treat your subjects. That's a pretty amazing thing. And then just again in passing, Daniel highlights the fact that, hey, this has nothing to do with me. He speaks humbly and he says, this is not my ability, it's not my power, this is just God speaking and I'm serving him. And a good encouragement for all of us, we should be careful, careful, careful around people who claim to be spiritual but are not humble. We don't want leaders like Herod. We don't want leaders like Nebuchadnezzar. We want guys like Daniel, the apostles, men who are humble. Verse 31 says, You, O king, were watching. We're in the dream now. And behold, a great image, a statue. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. In his dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a magnificent statue. It was full of earthly glory, immense and formidable. We see it described from the top down in five portions, right? We notice, what we notice is that each section is less precious 
than the last as far as the material that makes it up. But we should also notice that each section is also harder than the last. And I verified this. I went on. They have some weird metal hardness scale that you can look at. And they've designed all the, not just these metals, but all metals, a hardness scale. And so each metal is harder than the last until the toes, which mingles the strongest metal in the statue, iron, with the weakness of ceramic clay. Verse 34. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Stop there. So the statue stands until a stone emerges and strikes the feet. Note that only the feet are struck. And as a result, the entire image falls and is ground to a powder, blown away without a trace being left. And then this powerful stone starts to grow and grow. And if we thought this, you know, metal image was impressive, and it was at the beginning, if we thought it stood tall in some field somewhere, now we're really seeing something. Now we're seeing a real image of strength as this stone grows and fills the entire earth. And so as the dream closes, we see that this stone is greater than the statue in power and magnitude on a level that you can't even compute. It's, it's an interesting optic. You start with this, man, this great image. Wow, it's formidable. It's awesome. It's full of glory. And by the end, it's this, it doesn't even exist anymore. It's powder. It's dust in the air. And now something really big and really great has not just taken its place, but filled the whole earth. Now, having retold the dream, Daniel now gives the explanation. Verse 36 continues, now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory, and wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So this is really important for us to lock in on. The golden head was a symbol for a real man and his real empire. Okay, uh, that's obvious. You can't get around that. A real person, real kingdom. The golden head does not stand for something metaphorical or allegorical or, or metaphysical, right? Daniel is clear. He says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, the real person, are the golden head, and your kingdom is a portion of this vision, okay? But he's immediately told that all of that power is from the Lord. And as readers, we are reminded that Nebuchadnezzar may be a king of kings, he's, as he's described here, but he's not the king of kings. We serve the king of kings. And so no matter who has the power at the time, God's power is greater and God is in charge. Verse 39 continues. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Now, we can fill in here what Daniel doesn't specify at this point because this passage doesn't exist in isolation. This vis vision isn't an only child, right? There is more revealed, not only in the rest of this book, which we'll get to in the future, but in the rest of the Bible. You know, more than a quarter of the Bible was prophetic in nature when it was written. A lot of those prophecies have been fulfilled. A lot of them are still yet to be fulfilled. But if you piled up all the verses of the Bible and stirred them up together, one out of every four that you pull out was prophetic in nature. And so this vision is not just 
some isolated thing that stands on its own. It's part of biblical prophecy. And so we can combine the other things we're told in other passages. We can also look back through recorded history and gain insight into what some of these elements are. We can't read prophetic passages of the Bible in isolation. That's a real quick way to theological trouble. The Bible harmonizes, right? The book of Daniel cooperates with the book of Ezekiel and the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation, and together they explain what God wants us to know in regards to prophecy or what we would often call eschatology, which is simply the uh, studying things of the end times, the end of human history. The second world empire, the Silver Kingdom, is the Medo-Persian Empire. We're told as much in Daniel 5.28. Let me read that verse to you. Daniel says, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So after Babylon, the kingdom which ruled over Israel and the Medo was the Medo-Persian Empire. Why was it inferior? Daniel highlights that. Well, Many scholars point to the fact that compared to Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire had much less authoritarian power. Uh, he was not in total control like Nebuchadnezzar had been. Nebuchadnezzar could say, kill everybody in the government, and they just went out and did it. We'll see Darius, the king, uh, he gets taken advantage of by his government, by his officials, and that he himself is subject to the laws of the land. And so uh, many scholars would say, well, that's how he was inferior. The power of the monarch was inferior. Uh, others argue that there, the downgrade in metals in this image signifies the deterioration of the human condition or the deterioration of human morality within each empire. Hard to say which one is more appropriate. The third kingdom made of bronze was the empire of the Greeks. Alexander the Great conquered the Persians in 331 BC and that included the region of Judea. In fact, very interesting, the historian Josephus records that when Alexander came to Jerusalem, the high priest brought him to the temple and showed him the book of Daniel and said, yeah, we knew you were coming. And that uh, Alexander was so impressed that he said, okay, I'm going to come back tomorrow and then you come and ask me for gifts and I'll give you gifts. And so uh, pretty interesting, but that they showed him these texts and they said, this is you that the Bible was talking about hundreds of years ago. Now the fourth kingdom. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, verse 40, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. We identify this as the Roman Empire. It was Rome who conquered the Greeks and in 63 BC took control of Judea. Remember, we're talking about uh, the flow of world empires in relation to God's chosen people, Israel, and who was in control over them. Uh, elsewhere or in books when you read about this, you'll talk about sometimes the times of the Gentiles. And after God's people were exiled out, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, they would say that, okay, this was the inauguration of the times of the Gentiles. Gentiles. And that's a phrase that you'll find in your Bible. And so uh, it's going through these world empires of Gentile empires which rule over the land of what we would call Palestine or Judea and the people of Israel. Now Rome was known for strength and ferocity. These characteristics are developed in another vision we'll see in Daniel 7. We're going to see a companion vision to this one, which is why we're not going super in-depth right now, because there's going to be a different vision of beasts that talks more about these different world empires. 
but we see especially with the, the corresponding uh, image in chapter seven that the empire of Rome was particularly ferocious and uh, violent. One writer wrote this, Rome's rise and fall was like a human weather system as destructive as nature's most violent hurricanes. But unlike the previous three kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, this empire has a second phase in the vision. Did you notice that? You have four empires but five segments on the statue. Uh, You see first the legs of iron, but then you see a fifth segment, the feet and the toes, where iron is then mixed with clay. And so you see four empires in five parts. Verse 41 says, Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. They will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So the second phase of the Roman Empire depicted here is characterized by this amalgam of strength with weakness, uh, perhaps joined together through bonds of marriage when it talks about um, mingling with the seed of men. But in verse 44, we're also going to be told that it will not be ruled by one single monarch like the other kingdoms, but by kings, plural. And this will be developed in great detail in chapter 7. Verse 44, and in the days of these kings, the kings of the toes, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made it known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. The stone made without hands is a clear reference to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This imagery is developed in multiple passages, particularly those dealing with God's cornerstone, the stone that the chief builders have rejected has become the cornerstone, right? Uh, Those passages are found in the Psalms or in the Gospels. Uh, In the Gospel of Mark, the Pharisees come and they talk about what Jesus said, and they said, he said that destroy this temple, and then I will in three days raise up a temple made without hands, and he's so referencing himself after the resurrection as this stone made without hands. So, Here in our text, we see that at some point, the Messiah of God will arrive, strike the kingdom which is represented by the feet and the toes of this statue, and then all human empires will be totally wiped away. And then an everlasting heavenly kingdom will be established in place of the previous world kingdoms, and that that kingdom will have no end. So pretty straightforward. So then the question arises, is this referring to Christ's first coming or his second coming? While to us the answer is obvious that it's the second coming, there are many Christians and branches of the church which hold to the idea that the image of this stone is simply an analogy for the first coming of Christ. That he came the first time and he hit the ground and the spread of the gospel is what Daniel is talking about here. 
Uh, and the teaching in, in these traditions or the understanding is that, well, there is no literal future kingdom on the earth. The kingdom of heaven is now either in heaven or in our hearts, and it's expressed through the church. Don't expect Jesus to come back and establish a literal kingdom. That's one view. Now, there are a lot of insurmountable problems with this interpretation. The worst one in my mind is the fact that you have to change the way you interpret the vision in the middle of the vision. And uh, this just offends me about how sometimes prophecy is, is interpreted. Because think about this, the head of gold, oh that's a real man and a real kingdom one that's historical that we can look back at. Here's the year it started. Here's the year it ended. Here are the kings in it. Uh, the chest of silver, the belly of bronze. Oh yeah, those were real literal kingdoms. Here's when they started. Here's when they ended. Uh, the coming heavenly kingdom. Oh yeah, that's just allegorical. That's just metaphysical. That has nothing to do with reality or, or your actual experience here in human history. In other words, in the first half of the vision, two plus two equals four, but in the second half of the vision, two plus two equals just about anything other than four. How is that fair? How, how does that make sense? How are we supposed to, if that's the way that God wants us to interpret this passage, how are we to know when to switch from interpreting literally to interpreting allegorically? Uh, that's a big problem. Another problem is that in the first coming of Jesus, he did not destroy the Roman Empire. What's the one thing he said about Caesar? He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He didn't say, all of that's mine, don't give him anything. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven with Tiberius on the throne. He said, yeah, man, you're on the throne. You, you, the Roman Empire wiped out all kinds of Christians, right? Jesus didn't destroy the world empire when he came to earth the first time. Or how about this? You know, they say, well, this stone going, that's the gospel going out. Okay, well, it clearly says that, that all of these world empires are conquered and done away with. Are we seeing that? The gospel has spread all over the earth, yes, but has the gospel conquered all the systems of men, all the kingdoms of men, replaced all the governments of men with God-fearing leaders who honor the Lord? Quite the contrary, right? It has spread, but it certainly hasn't conquered. Instead, we recognize this vision to be discussing the second coming of Christ at the end of the future great tribulation when he will establish a real, literal, thousand-year reign on the earth followed by eternity in heaven. We interpret the feet and the toes to be a revived Roman Empire that is yet to come on the scene. Now, why? Well, because no other empire in history has fit the bill. You can look at the head of gold. You know exactly who that is because we're told. You can look at the chest of silver. We know who that is. We can look at the belly of bronze. We know who that is. You look at the legs of iron. We know who that is. The feet and the toes mixed together, especially in comparison to Daniel chapter 7 and these other passages, there is no empire that has come on the scene that fits the bill, that matches up just the way all of the other empires matched up with the vision. And so uh, the other big problem is that under the first Roman Empire, what happened in Israel? The diaspora, God's people, the Jews were sent out and became stateless, right? For 2,000 years. That wasn't under a second Roman Empire, that was under the first Roman Empire. They were driven out and for 2,000 years were wandering the earth stateless until May of 1948 where in a day, in fulfillment of literal Bible prophecy, they became a nation again. 
but they're not under a Gentile rule right now, are they? They are independent, ruling themselves, right? They don't follow after the Lord, but there's no Gentile empire over Israel right now. And so we are looking for a future revived Roman empire, which is still coming and will at some point rule over Israel, fulfilling Daniel chapter two. And it is in that time which Jesus Christ will return and wipe out all of these worldly empires and establish his kingdom. Now the text closes starting in verse 46. And King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering, an incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of many secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Remember, Daniel's like 18 or 17 at this point. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set, uh, he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. In case you're wondering, Nebuchadnezzar is not a believer yet in this passage. He'll get there. Uh, I'm one who feels pretty confident that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. He's going to write a gospel tract to all his empire later in the book. But here, his proclamations are in response to the remarkable wonder he just witnessed. We know he's not a believer because we turn the page. And on the next page, you know what he's going to do? Purposefully defy this God of Daniel by setting up an image that looks just like this one. Oh, but it's all gold. He defies God, thumbs his nose at God and says, no, 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 my kingdom only and my kingdom never ends. The head, the chest, the belly, the legs, it's all me. And I'm going to kill anybody who doesn't worship my image. So uh, he's not a believer yet, but he'll get there because the Lord stays after him in his grace and his compassion. And of course, we know Daniel's generosity and his kindness to his friends. He was watching out for them. Great exhortation for us. Watch out for your brothers and sisters. So here, as we see God's broad plan for the world, and these are just broad strokes that are fleshed out later in the book and in other prophecies in the Bible, here we are encouraged that God is most definitely in charge. He most definitely has a plan. He knows what's going on. He knows what is coming. The victory is his, and he extends that victory to you and I in whatever empire you might find yourself in. Uh, whether you were in Babylon or whether you're in America, whether you're you know, under the Ottoman rule or whatever, God is in charge and he extends victory to us. And along the way, we can be like Daniel, people who are bold, people who are full of faith, people who have integrity, who are confident in the work of God, people who are kind and generous towards others, humble about ourselves, sharing the truth of God's personal compassion, even with the worst people around us. That's who Daniel was, and that's the life of privilege we've been granted by the grace of our Lord. Uh, thank you, Lord, for those opportunities. 